I am so ready to preach to the Word of God that He has put in my spirit. So why don't you get your Bible, uh, if you have one, and you can turn or click to Isaiah 53 and John chapter 8. I'm going to be in Isaiah 53 and John chapter 8. And while you're turning and clicking, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We have two really large Bibles on either side of the platform. We're going to put all the Scripture up there so you don't have to feel intimidated at all. If you don't know where John is, don't worry. Don't worry at all. Um, But while you're turning and clicking, I want to welcome all those who are doing church online today. We welcome you. Yeah, let's welcome them and our house campus in College Station. We welcome you. So glad that you guys are there and joining with us and so excited about all that God is is doing. Um, I wanted, uh, and I don't know if I've ever really done this uh, before. In fact, I, this last week was in some meetings with pastors and a pastor was asking me, he said, hey, do you usually do a, a series leading up to Easter? Do you do a, a series that starts at Easter? And he was just asking. And I said, you know, I've done, I've done probably everything. Um, but I said, this year I'm doing a series that leads up to Easter. And there was just something that God put in my heart about um, understanding the totality of what Jesus has paid for. And, and I'm concerned that some Sometimes in in modern Christendom, um, that we have relegated the gospel to the forgiveness of sin, which is which is paramount, which is incredible, which is which is extraordinary in and of itself. But that is not all that Jesus has done. That is not all that Jesus paid for. Jesus did not just pay. Listen, Jesus did not just pay for your eternity. He paid for your present reality. And you need to understand that Jesus has paid for so much more than just the forgiveness of your sin. And so with that, that's why we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53, because I want to talk, and I think there's one verse in here that sums this up, but I want to talk about more of all that Jesus has paid for, because Jesus just didn't pay so that you could go to heaven. He paid so that you could live victoriously on this earth, so that you could overcome, so that you could win, so that you could be free, so that you could triumph, so that you could prosper, and so that you could be in He pray, He paid not only, not only for where you're going, for, for, for being in his eternal presence, if you will, but he, he paid for your present purpose. He paid for what you called and created to do. He paid to restore and redeem everything. And I think when we look at, at the cross and we look at the crucifixion, that, that we need to understand that every wound, that, that every punishment placed on Jesus, was all of them were redemptive all of them were redemptive in purpose and in value, that, that God did not allow his son to endure anything that did not have some type of redemptive power or quality to it for us today, that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't just flippantly tortured without reason or cause, but that everything he endured, it meant something, it purchased something for us. And we need to understand that so we can live the life that God has called us to. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah is the most prolific prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied Uh, His ministry actually starts, the Bible says very clearly, in the year that King Uzziah died which is 740 BC. His eye was a phenomenal king. Um, and, and his ministry starts there. His, his prophecy, his ministry is for 64 years. He's a prophet really to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, this time the kingdoms are divided into Israel and to Judah. And Isaiah prophesied mostly in Jerusalem to, to, to Judah. And his prophecy starts as a prophecy of judgment, meaning God is going to judge their sin and their trespass and, and their idolatry. But it ends in all of these themes of salvation and hope, how God will bring them back, how God will restore, how God will, will deliver them. And, and it talks about the salvation of God contained within his, his prophecies, um, are four songs, four songs. They're known as servant songs, servant songs. Isaiah is, is, is the prophet that depicts Jesus as a suffering servant, as a suffering, kind of like the gospel of Mark, but a suffering servant. And so there are these four songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, We actually see them in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53. Those are the places where you can find them, these songs about this suffering servant who would pay for the sin of many. And so we see that, and, and the most, probably, in fact, some theologians say the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy is Isaiah 53. Most people are familiar with the verse that we're going to read. In fact, it is, it is, it is the, the climax of this particular servant song. While it is known for those of us who believe in Jesus to be the, the, the apex or, or, the, or the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy for Orthodox Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
it is, it is more like a torture chamber because it, it so clearly seems to depict this servant who would be sent by God. He would be the innocent. He would lay down his life for the guilty. He would take sin. He would take sickness. He would take shame. He would be beaten. Um, why it so clearly seems to depict what we know to be Jesus. In fact, all four of these songs do, but this one is probably the most clear. If you don't believe in Jesus, you have to come up with a different theory. And this has been a torture chamber for, for rabbis for years to try to say, well, who is this then if this is not talking about Jesus? In fact, one, one author said this, this section contains inarguable and incontrovertible proof that God is the author of scripture and Jesus the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. The details are so minute that no human could predict them by accident and no imposter fulfill them by cunning. In other words, we believe and that this has to be a depiction and a picture of Jesus, the only innocent one who would be tortured to redeem all the guilty. Are you with me? And so we see that in Isaiah. So we're going to look at this last song, this servant song. It actually starts in Isaiah 52, verse 12. Um, it, I'm sorry, Isaiah 52, verse 13. It continues through Isaiah 53, verse 13. Kind of the climax, the high point of it are, are verses uh, 4, 5, and 6. And we're just going to read one verse. This is going to be kind of the verse of uh, this entire series. Uh, and that is Isaiah 53, verse 5. And it says this, very famous, very familiar. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we were healed. And, and this is why I picked this. I, I called this series All For You because I want you to understand all that Jesus did for you. Now, we could take years to talk about that. I'm going to spend four weeks just, just taking this passage essentially phrase by phrase. But I want you to understand that what we're going to talk about today is he was wounded for our transgression. That's our trespass. That's where we had fallen short. That's where we had sinned. That's, that's where we had transgressed the law, if you will. But that's not where it stops. Because then it goes on, and we'll talk about these, but it goes on to say he was bruised for our iniquity or our weakness, right? He was bruised for what's wrong on the inside, right? And then it goes on to say, and, and the punishment or the chastisement that brought us peace, that's, that's wholeness, was upon him by his stripes. And so when you look at this, it's like he purchased our forgiveness, he, he paid for our, our, our trespass, he purchased our forgiveness, he paid for our weaknesses, he paid for our wholeness and he paid for our health. And I want you to understand that he did so much more than just offer forgiveness. He did so much more. He paid for you to live the life that God created you for. He paid to provide for everything you would need. And he paid for everything, every curse of sin, right? Not just the punishment, but every, every curse, every power he paid for all sin, so that you could live the life God, God called you to. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And for that reason, I want to jump now to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So it's the last year of Jesus' ministry. Uh, it's right after the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus has a strange encounter. And we see this in verse 1. It says, but when Jesus uh, went to the Mount of Olives, that was like his bat cave. That's where he would go to get away from everybody. It says, now early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that we should stone her. But what do you say? Now, now the narrative tells us what's really going on. Verse six, it says, they said this testing him that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. 
and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's a good, good text. I call this message the cover-up. The cover-up. Can we pray together? Father, thank you so much for the word of God that is living and active and powerful, God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides, God, even our soul and our spirit. God, it's the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And God, today, we have gathered, God, not, not around religious obligation, but we have gathered around your presence and around your word. And we are asking for your word to do exactly what the writer of Hebrews said. And that is, God, let it discern our thoughts and intents. Let it do some heart surgery on us today. God, we, we know that if we're sick today, it's because of our heart. If we're struggling today, God, there's probably something going on in our heart. God, if we're far away from you today, it's probably something going on in our heart. And God, we ask that you would examine our heart, that you would search us and know us and see if there's anything in us, God, that today by your grace, you would want to adjust so that we could live the life you've called us to. God, we have gathered around your word and in your presence. And God, if we really open our hearts, there is no way that we could leave the same way that we came in. God, that's our prayer that today we would be transformed in your presence. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. The cover-up. If you want to write these three things down, three points that I see in this text uh, that we will talk about. The first one is this, the setup. The setup. We know from the narrative that, that the reason we even have this, this account, if you will, in, in Scripture is it's all a setup. They are trying to discredit Jesus. Uh, I grew up watching cartoons. Anybody grew up watching cartoons? And, um, and, and watching cartoons as I did, I, I watched Looney Tunes, right? This is before we had Cartoon Network. At least if they had it, I didn't know about it. We had four channels. Anybody else raised with four channels? You had tenfold on top of your TV trying to get a fifth channel. I was raised with four channels, and so on Saturday morning, I got to watch cartoons, and I remember watching the Looney Tunes. I don't care about your theology about the Looney Tunes. I understand it was violent. I understand people blew up, and, but they all showed up in the next cartoon, so it was okay. And, and, and I love to watch Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. And most of the time when the Pharisees are after Jesus and they're constantly trying to discredit him or disprove him or show him to be a fake or a phony, I feel again like I'm trapped in an episode of Looney Tunes where Wiley the Coyote has, has called Acme and they have sent some new brick, some new anvil, some new dynamite where they're going to trap Jesus and blow him up. And every time Jesus looks at them, Mimi, and goes right by and they blow up. I love it. I love it. One of my favorite things about Jesus. And this is one of those times. It says that they had brought this woman to him to, to test him. Verse 6 says that they might have something with which to accuse him. You see, it was a setup because they brought him this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And essentially, they're like, hey, what do you think we ought to do with her? Now, here's what they knew, that Roman had forbid Jews to enact uh, or evoke capital punishment. So if Jesus would have said stone her, then and they would have done it, and I'm sure they would have, because they'd been able to blame Jesus, then he would have been arrested by Rome and probably put to death, and their problem would have been solved. See, they weren't really after, they weren't really after morality, right? They were after Jesus' mortality. And, so, um, and so, so they knew that. But if Jesus said, no, don't stone her and disagrees with the law, then they've got him trapped because now he's a false prophet because he disagreed with the law of Moses. Now, here's the backstory that you probably don't know. No one had been stoned for adultery for over a thousand years in Israel. They had decided a long time ago, probably because of their own sin and they kept falling into adultery, they decided that that was just for the wilderness wanderings. It's not for today. Isn't it interesting how sometimes in the Bible we find inconvenient truth that we decide is for someone else and not for us? That's a different sermon, but it would preach well. And so no one had been stoned for, for a thousand years. Not only that, we know it's a setup because this woman is caught in the very act of adultery, which most of us would understand would need to include another person. 
Like, where's he at? And, and we know, we know it's all a conspiracy. In fact, and, and people have asked, well, where's he and what would have been the, 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 the penalty for, for the man? Well, it's actually, he would have actually been uh, placed in a pile of dung up to his waist. He'd had a long sheet or towel wrapped uh, around his throat. Man on either side would have pulled until it strangled him to death. Then he would have fallen in the dung and they would have just left him in the public place. That would have been his plight. But he's not found. Somehow he got away. They caught her in the very act of adultery, but he was able to get away. I don't know. So for all these reasons, we know that, 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 that Jesus is being set up. And obviously Jesus knows it too. But what about the woman? Because truthfully, she was set up too. Now, I want to say something, and I want you to hear me. This woman was set up by the Pharisees, by the scribes, the people who, who um, copied the, the law and the Pharisees, the people who said they kept the law. But I want you to understand, she was caught, whether it was a setup or not, she was caught in the act of adultery. So before we make her a victim, let's understand she did have a choice. And while she was set up, she still had a part to play she still made the decision to do what she did. And so we need to understand this. It may have been a setup, but all it did was expose her guilt. Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably not the first time she committed adultery. They had to know who she was and where to find her. Probably some of them have been with her. But that's a different sermon all in of itself. But I want you to understand that she's guilty. Now, here's why. Because there's a great picture here. There's the great picture of why God gives us the law. Because the law always catches us in our sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? Here are the Pharisees. The Pharisees represent the law of God. They say they kept it. They were the keepers of the law. And what did the law do? The law exposed this woman's sin. It caught her in her sin. And that's exactly the purpose of the law, is to catch us in sin. In fact, Romans 3.19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, look at this, so that every mouth, how many mouths? Every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world, how much of the world, would be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, what we can do in and of ourselves, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. And so you need to understand that God gave us the law. Do you know why God gave us the law? Listen to me very carefully. God gave us the law because God can only save guilty people. God can only save guilt. And I think, I think and, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I'm probably going to offend half the church before I get finished with this message. But I want to say it right up front that I love you. And, and I want you to, to weigh out whether you are offended at me or whether you're offended at the fact that I told you what the Bible said that you didn't like. Because there are some inconvenient truths in the Bible that sometimes we don't like, right? And the reality is God can only save guilty people. And God gave us a law so that every mouth would be silent, so that no one would be able to say, no, I'm good. I got this on my own, Jesus. No, look at how good I, I got perfect church attendance. I've been a life group leader since five years. I've tithed. Lord, look at how good I, and the law says no. Because James said, if you've ever broken one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the entire law and there is no salvation through the law. The law was given for one, one purpose so it would shut your mouth so you would understand I don't have a plea. I can't get there on my own. I don't have an argument. I am guilty before God. I am conscious of my sin and now that I am guilty, I know I need somebody to save me. Paul told the Galatians the law was given to be a teacher to bring us to Christ. God can, and why do I say that? Because I'm afraid in the church we don't have sinners anymore. We have people who have struggles. 
They have propensities. They have problems. But we don't have anybody sinning. And here's the problem with that. If you don't have sin, you don't need a Savior. You, when you have sin, you need a Savior. As long as you just have a struggle or a problem or something you're working through, you're working through it on your own. But when you can say, I am screwed up, messed up, jacked up, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, then all of a sudden God can save that kind of person. That's right, I'm going to preach old school Pentecostal preaching today. That's what I was born to do. (laughs) You see, Jesus walked around telling the religious crowd, he would say, hey, listen to me, listen to me. If you just admit you were blind, I could give you sight. If you just admit you were sick, I could heal you. If you admit you were lost, I could find you. And I'm afraid today in this great dispensation of grace, which I love the grace of Jesus, and we're going to talk about it today. But listen to me. Grace isn't good unless there's a trespass. Grace grace hasn't value unless you know you transgress something. You don't need grace if you think you can get there on your own, if you can do it by yourself, if you can merit it in and of your own behavior. You don't need grace. But when the law catches you and you realize that all of us have been caught in adultery, all of us have been caught in a sin that is against God, which is ultimately adultery and we are all the adulterous ones and we all become guilty before God and our mouths get quiet then all of a sudden we can say I gotta have some grace since I can't do it on my own I may have to trust what Jesus did see the law actually testifies of the grace of God we miss this sometimes we think God's bipolar that he was in a bad mood in the old testament but somebody gave him some coffee for the new testament and now all of a sudden he's happy again And it's not true. God is consistent throughout. He was just as gracious in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. And in his grace in the Old Testament, he gave us a law. Now, now why did he do that? Because Romans 5.13 tells us, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. Now think about that. What if you were lost in sin and didn't know it? What if you were doomed in your trespass and in your transgression and had no idea and didn't have a way to figure that out? He said, we were all lost, but he said, sin is not charged against anyone's account unless there's a law. And look at this. He said, because of that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, they were still in sin. Verse 15 says, but the gift is not like the trespass for if many died by the trespass of the one man. Look at this. How much more? That's always a grace statement in the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul. How much more did God's grace? And the gift that came through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many. Do you see what he's saying? God gave us the law so that we would understand our transgression, so that we could receive the gift of grace. That we're not saved. We cannot be saved. We cannot be justified by our behavior, by our religious activities and duties and prayers and offerings. We cannot be saved by what we do at all. We, we have all transgressed and without grace, there is no hope. But grace says that we are now saved, not because of our performance, but because of our position, that we have been placed in the seat of Jesus at God's right hand, that we have his place and not our place. It is the great substitutionary atonement, if you will, that Jesus was the propitiation and he took our place and we get his place. And now because of what Jesus has done, listen, listen, now, now I have this place provided by the grace of God that is not contingent upon my behavior. Isn't it good to know that your behavior doesn't change your relationship with God anymore? Because in, 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 in religion, your behavior changes your relationship. Well, on your good days, you're, he's okay with you. On your bad days, but here's the thing, your best day can't make him okay with you. On your best day, you're the adulterous woman. When you realize that and you realize, okay, I need the grace of God and it's either all grace or all law and the law doesn't work for me. The law is going to catch me in sin and condemn me to death every time and I decide to receive the grace of Jesus. Now I realize if my behavior can't save me, my behavior can't sentence me that I am held by the hands of, Je- by, by the hands of Jesus in the grace of God for eternity as long as my faith is placed in him. She was, she was caught. It was, a, it, was a, it was a setup. Here's the second thing. I want to talk about the cover-up. The, the cover-up. Verse 7 says, So they continued asking. And he raised himself up and said, Whoever's without sin, let him throw the first stone. And he stooped down again. And he started riding on the ground. I love this because, number one, Jesus points to the futility of judging others. The futility 
of judging others. You know, that idea that, well, I think I'm doing better than them, so God should bless me more. How did they get blessed? I know what they did last summer. How did they get a new car? I know they ain't been tithing. How'd they get a new house? I saw their Instagram post. They've been they in Vegas at the boats. Well, there's not boats in Vegas, but whatever. Boats in Shreveport. Hotels in Vegas. And all of a sudden, we kind of get that self-righteous idea that maybe I'm doing better than them. They're not quite doing as well as me. And, and all of a sudden, we use the law of God to measure ourselves against others, to give ourselves a pass. And you know, there's a lot of people... Brace yourself. There's a lot of people not dealing with the sin in their own heart because you've convinced yourself you're doing better than someone else. I think there's a lot of people that, that because we are judging others and, and, and trying to determine how well they're doing, we're not even looking at what's going on in our own hearts. You know, when Peter said, let judgment begin at the house of God, he didn't say, let the house of God begin judging people. He said, no, 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 let the Christians get right first. That's what he was saying. And Jesus is saying, it is futile. And I think he said this time, hey, before you try to get that splinter out of your neighbor's eye, why don't you pull that plank out of yours? You know what I love is they... Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. There's only one person in that crowd that can throw a rock. He was the one writing in the dirt. So he points to the futility. I, I could pre that'd be a good sermon. I can't preach that one, but he points to the futility. And then, and then I like, I like this. I like what happens. And you got to use a little bit of your holy imagination because the, the narrative doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus wrote in the ground. It's the only time we find Jesus writing anything, but it doesn't tell us exactly what he wrote. But if we use our holy imagination, we can use the context clues to see that these people indignantly are standing there. They're ready to stone her. And firstly, he says, well, him without sin cast the first stone. In their culture, the first person um, that was going to accuse her had to throw the first rock at her. Someone had to step up. But that person had to be sinless. If they were not sinless then, then, and someone testified of their sin, then they would be put to death for, for executing this other person. Are, are you with me? So, so you, notice how, you notice how hypocrites are always good in a crowd? is when you single them out that there's a problem. That's what Jesus said. Okay, you are good in a crowd. You're tough in a crowd. Who will throw the first rock? And everybody's looking around like, uh-uh, because people know what I did. I throw the first rock. I'm going to be, uh-uh, not going to do it, Jesus. And then Jesus starts riding on the ground. Now, here's what the Bible the text says. The text says, then they left from the oldest to the least. So there's an order. And it's because of what he's writing, and they're convicted in their conscience. Now, Jesus is writing with his finger. It's the only place that he wrote. God wrote one time with his finger in the Old Testament. What did he write? The law. That's just, my, we can ask Jesus when we get there. My opinion is Jesus started writing commands and listing the people who had broken them. Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Ed, Bob, texting while driving. Sam, you know, I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right? And all of a sudden, the oldest guy's like, oh, 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 right? And by the time it gets down a little bit ways, those young guys are like, I'm getting out of here before he writes my name. I'm out. Like, I ain't. And here's what I love is it says, then Jesus was left alone. He was left alone. Left alone with this woman. That's what I love about grace. This is such a beautiful picture if you think about it. Here's the law demanding payment for sin. And Jesus removes the woman from the law. He stands between the law and her. He covers her sin. And in covering her sin, the first thing he does is he frees her from the penalty of it because they were ready to put her to death. And he frees her. Listen to me. And you need to understand about the work of Jesus. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. He has given us power over sin. And he will deliver us from the presence of sin. That's redemption, right? Do you understand that? So he paid for the penalty of sin. 
so we could overcome the power of sin, so that we could be free from the presence of sin. And so here he frees her from the, from the penalty of sin. You can find this in Romans 3. It says, verse 21, now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the law. As was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. In other words, this works for everybody. For everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. How many have sinned? Just so we're real clear that we're just a group of people who were in our sin, but Jesus saved us. None of us made, there's no bragging in heaven. None of us got in on our own merit, right? We all had to come the same way through the humility of saying, I have sinned and I miss God's standard and I need someone to save me. Yet God in his grace, look at this, freely. How does he do it? Freely, that's a grace word. Makes us right inside. He did this through Jesus. Look at this, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That's the first thing, Jesus. Listen, they're ready to let her pay for her sin and and the penalty of that sin and the penalty of all sin. Listen to me very carefully. The penalty of all sin is death for the wages of sin is death. Sin earns you a payday and that payday is a funeral. It's death. Are you with me? And Jesus steps in and frees her, number one, from the penalty of sin. But he doesn't stop there. There's a couple of places in this text where I think he could have stopped, but he doesn't. And it could have been enough just to say, where are your accusers? They're gone. And and Jesus could have said, go and do better. Good Jesus could have said, you're free to go. I rescued you from the penalty of your sin. That's an awesome day if you're this lady. Are you with me? Right? She, she is an adulterous lady. She committed adultery, meaning she has a husband. Like, like by there, you go their route, she's not going to see her husband anymore. Like, it's, he'll find out that he's having a funeral now. And Jesus could have stopped right there, freed her from the penalty of sin. But then he says, neither do I condemn you. He's the only one in the crowd who could. He was the only one who had the right Hear what I'm saying. He was the sinless man in the crowd who had the right to condemn her. And he says, I'll not only free you from the penalty of sin, I'll free you from the condemnation of your sin. Neither do I. Now, why would Jesus, why is it just not enough to free us from the penalty of sin? Why does he go farther to free us from the condemnation of sin? I think a lot of reasons. I think number one is that God never intended for us to carry sin. God never intended for us to be shamed or to be guilty. God never intended, he didn't create us for condemnation. He didn't create us. Condemnation, the Bible says, kills. Condemnation brings death. It says the the letter kills, but the law brings, but the spirit brings life. In other words, condemnation kills us. I think there's a lot of people struggling with sickness in their body and they're struggling to, to receive all that Jesus has. And the reason you're struggling to receive it is because you're still under condemnation from your sin. And you need to understand that Jesus not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but he freed us from the condemnation of the sin. Paul said it this way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does no really mean? Does it mean some or most or other people's? Or did Jesus really free you from the condemnation of your sin? That you don't have to carry the weight of your sin. You don't have to carry the judgment of your sin. He has freed you from the condemnation of your sin. Why? Because Jesus knows a couple of things. Number one, he knows condemnation will keep you from God. If our heart condemns us, we don't have confidence towards God, the Bible says. He knows that that condemnation will keep us from God. He knows that condemnation will keep us from living the life that God created us for. He knows that condemnation will keep us stuck. It will keep us trapped. It will keep us in guilt and it will keep us in shame. And guilt and shame are things that always mask our identity. In other words, we cannot be who God created us to be and be full of shame and guilt. And we cannot do what God has called us to do if we don't have faith toward God that God can work in our lives. God doesn't want us to feel shame. He wants us to feel like sons. He doesn't want us to feel sin He wants us to feel like we're saved. He doesn't want us to feel guilt. He wants us to feel like glory. Are you with me? Now, there is someone who loves for us to feel condemned. 
Throwback to SNL and Dana Carvey and the church lady. Who is it? Could it be Satan? Why are y'all watching SNL? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'll get an email. If that offends you, email mark at (laughs) pathway.team. He's more gracious. But the church lady told us who was at the root of everything. I never thought I would preach on Saturday Night Live and the church lady. This is not an endorsement for the show, by the way. They don't have to send me an email, but she would say, could it be Satan? Yeah, who, who wants us to feel condemned, Satan? He wants us to feel condemned. In fact, the Bible says he is constantly accusing us, that he is our accuser. Here's the bad thing. Do you know what he accuses us with? Stuff we did. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't have to make up stuff to accuse you with. Because if you're like me, you've given him a lot of material to work with. Don't look at me like self-righteous hypocrites. How many's given him some material? Can we just be honest? We've given him a little bit of material to work with. And so when he accuses us, he's just bringing up stuff we actually did. And that's why it brings so much condemnation because we're like, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah, I did that. But you know what I love about this text? Oh, this is my favorite part. I don't know if I've ever noticed this before. Can you guys put verse six of Romans eight up there? Yeah, Romans eight, verse six. John eight, verse six. I totally confuse them. They love it when I go off script. Not at all. John eight, verse six, it says this. It says that, and they're working on it. See, I totally messed them up. There it is right there. Give it up for the TA team. Love those guys. I love this verse. I don't know if I've ever noticed this. Look at this. They said it testing him. They wanted to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger. Look at this. As though he did not hear. Aren't you glad today that Jesus is not interested in listening to any accusation against you? Now, here's the thing. It was true. She was caught. She was guilty. And it's true of you. And you've been caught. And you're guilty. But Jesus is turning a deaf ear to every accusation against you because he's already paid for every sin and every transgression. He's not listening and neither should you. What would your life be like if you had stopped listening to the accuser of your soul? Jesus isn't listening and neither, neither should you. I love John 3.17. We all know John 3.16. But John 3.17 says that God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't God doesn't want you condemned. He sent Jesus to save us. Now here's the question. It's a cover-up, right? Jesus covers her by his grace. We see grace covering her from the law. But here's, here's the issue. Why can he do that? Because we've established, is she guilty? Did she do it? She did the dirty deed. She's guilty. It may have been a setup, but she made her decision. And so is she guilty? Did she do it? Did she sin? Did she break the law? Did she commit adultery? Then how can he let her off? How can he let her go? Sin has to be paid for. Jesus didn't let her go. He just took her sin. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body so we could die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. It's a reference to Isaiah 53. Here's what you need to understand. Because God is just, sin has to be paid for. Jesus would be unjust and so would God if he let her off. He didn't let her off. He took her sin upon him. Paul said it this way. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. And you need to understand, Jesus, the only one who could have accused her, the only one that could have thrown the stone was the one that said, you know what? I can't let you off, but I will take your sin. 
I'll cover you up in my grace and I'll pay for what you should pay for. And I'll take what you've done and what is yours and I'll put it on me. So, so I'm not letting you off. This is not an acquittal. This is not a mistrial. The law will still get a guilty verdict and it will still get blood, but it'll be mine and not yours. Now see, Jesus could have stopped right there and so could we because that's good preaching and that's a good message. But I got, you got time for one more point? The setup, the cover-up, number three, the level up. Because Jesus could have stopped, neither do I condemn you. And he, he, he's freed her from the penalty of sin and he's freed her from condemnation and he could have just said, okay, I'm done right there. Go in peace. But he doesn't say that. He says something else, right? He says this, I don't condemn you. And then he says one more thing, go and sin. Go and sin. Go and sin. In other words, Jesus said, you know what? I freed you from the penalty of sin. I freed you from the condemnation of sin. Now I want to give you the power over sin. Do you notice that, that, that Jesus didn't say, go and, and don't, don't try to struggle with this anymore? Go, go and don't try to have this problem again. No, he called it exactly what it, you need to understand, Jesus calls sin, sin. Gracious, gracious, compassionate, loving, caring Jesus calls sin, sin. Never changes the standard of God. Jesus was a master at offering unconditional acceptance while not giving unconditional approval. To me, that's the way the church should be. We love everybody. It doesn't matter what your orientation or your belief system, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter what you've been, what you've been doing, what you did last night. We don't care. We accept you and we love you. But I think where the church today in, in, in the idea of being relevant, I think where we're missing it is we've, we've gotten better at unconditional acceptance and we've gotten worse at unconditional approval. In other words, what I'm saying is the church today, because we don't want to offend and we, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, then, then we're, we're, we're moving towards we accept everyone, which we should accept everyone. We should love everyone. We should welcome everyone. But it doesn't mean that we condone everything. That God's word is still God's standard. It's still God's desire. It's still, it's still God's principles and practices. And it's still what God has called us to. And, and in an age of, of relevance, can I tell you, Jesus was the most relevant person. He never changed the truth or the standard of God, yet he was known as a friend of sinners. Can I tell you that relevance doesn't deny truth. It just starts with love. Relevance does not deny truth. It just starts with love. It loves so much that it makes the truth palatable. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And my concern is in a culture that worships tolerance, the only people you do not have to be tolerant of is the church. And in, in a culture where we worship tolerance, where really people do not want tolerance, they want acceptance, they want approval. I think that the, that the church, we have to understand something, and I'm going to say it very clearly. Sin is still sin. Greed is sin. Lust is sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, sin, sin, sin. According to Jesus, sleeping with anyone you are not married to is sin. Jesus didn't say, I've covered you, now go have another affair. I've covered you, you can go get on the internet again. I've covered you, swipe right one more time and see how it works out for you. Go in. That his plan and purpose for us is to free us from the power of sin. Here's what Jesus knows that sometimes I think we're not completely sure about. And that is this. 
that, that I think we think that sin is the thing that keeps us from eternal promise. Jesus believes sin is the thing that keeps us from our present purpose. That sin is keeping us from stuff here, not just there. And I think sometimes we think, well, you know, it's not so bad here and I'm covered by grace and, and God has been good and I can kind of live the way that, that I want to live and it's, it's just going to be okay because God is so good and you're doing what Paul said not to do. And he said, hey, because of God's grace, should we continue in sin? He said, absolutely not. He has given us power, Romans 4, 16, that, that we're not under law, but under grace, we've been given the power to overcome sin. Jesus did come so you could live in sin. He came so you could overcome sin. Yes, he wasn't condemning. He didn't condemn this lady. He didn't condemn her sexuality, but he did condemn how she expressed her sexuality. He didn't condemn her as a sexual being. He just said, you did that in the wrong way in the wrong place. My concern is that that I think in, in modern Christian we so much don't want to offend anybody that we no longer adhere to the standard of God. Well, everybody sleeps with them before they marry them. Everybody lives with them first. Listen, listen to me very carefully, very in love. Listen, I love you. I'm not mad at you. You're welcome to come and do whatever you want to do. However you live, we accept you. But according to the Bible, sin is sin. And when, I, when this life is over, I'm not going to stand before culture and everybody. I'm going to stand before God. And it's only going to be his truth and his standard that matters. And what Jesus said is, hey, sin will always take from you. It will always steal from you, right? And my question is, are you shaping your life to God's truth? Are you shaping God's truth to your life? Do you remember in, in, um, in the wilderness, they're camped out at Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain and he's meeting with God and then there's a ruckus. There's a ruckus down below because they've all lost their minds and God's like, you better get down and talk to your boy Aaron because he left the associate pastor in charge, right? He left the associate pastor in charge and Aaron apparently was, was not as good as our associate pastors. Um, I've left them in charge many times and I didn't come back and y'all have a golden calf and everybody's naked and running around. And so he comes down and he left Aaron in charge for just a few days, every single one of them is naked. They're running around and they're worshiping a golden calf. But do you know the scariest thing about that is they fashioned the calf with their hands and named it Elohim or God. And I just wonder today, are you fashioning a God that you want to worship? Or are you letting the God that you worship fashion you? Shots fired. <laughs> because here's the reality of it. I'm not, I'm not preaching against sin because I want anybody to feel bad. I've already told you Jesus paid for condemnation. You don't have to feel bad. Jesus paid for the penalty. You don't have to pay for it. Jesus paid to deliver you. But you know why I preach against sin? Because you can't live your best life when you're stuck in sin. That's why Jesus didn't stop where he stopped. He was left with a woman who I believe couldn't look him in the eye. He was left with a woman who for the rest of her life was going to be known by the whole town as the adulterous woman. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how sin loves to give you an identity? The adulteress, the drunk, the addict, the pervert, whatever it is, the angry Whatever it is, sin loves to give you an identity and sin had given her an identity and because of that shame that was cloaking her identity and because of that guilt, and because of that condemnation, she would have been stuck. She would have been stuck as, as the person who was, who was the end of every joke, who was the subject of every rumor. And Jesus doesn't stop there because then he says, woman. Now that sounds derogatory in our culture. But up until then, she was adulterous. He called her woman. Remember Jesus called his own mother woman in John chapter two when she, when she wanted him to open the winery. Do you remember that? 
Y'all don't remember that? I know sometimes certain denominations struggle with this text that Jesus started turning stuff into wine and they want to make it Welch's. And it was a lot of wine. And I, anyways, but do you remember that? And, and she said, do whatever, the, Jesus, you got to do something. He tells us, you do whatever. And he said, woman, not my time. She ignored him. Do whatever he says. Remember he called his, his own mother that when he was on the cross. Woman, behold your son. In other words, you got to go home with John now because I'm dying. It was a term of, listen, respect, honor, and dignity. Here's why Jesus wants us to win against sin. Because he wants us to be who he created us to be. And he takes a woman who I believe couldn't look him in the eyes. Where are your accusers? They left. I don't condemn you. But I think when he said woman, I think she looked up. How could you call me a woman? How could you give me dignity and honor and respect knowing that I'm guilty, knowing that I've been caught in my sin, knowing what I've done? It's very clear. They all testified. I don't deny it at all. You know exactly all of my sin. You know all of my story. Yet instead of calling me adulterous, instead of calling me something shameful, instead of ignoring me, you call me to look face to face with you, to look in your eyes and you say, woman, look at me. I'm not going to condemn you. Now go and win over sin and become who God called you to be. I just didn't come to forgive you. I didn't come to release you from penalty. I didn't come to pay for condemnation. I came to restore everything that sin has tried to take from you. I came to restore shame and guilt. I came to restore identity and purpose and destiny and honor and respect. I came so you could be who God had you in his heart before he breathed life into you. I came to redeem every part of your life. Woman, go and sin no. And he's still saying that to you. He will not call you by your sin, but he will call you by your, by your purpose. He will call you by your destiny. He will call you son. The setup, the cover up, the level up. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded so that we would never be known by our sin. We would be known by our Savior. We would be known by His grace. We would be known by who He says we are, not by what anyone says we did. Can you give Jesus one more praise? Why don't you stand?